another episode of the Progression Podcast. We haven't done one for a little while. Definitely, this is only the second time that Neil and I have gone uh, podcast together. Neil, my co-founder, for those people who haven't listened to our previous conversation. So today we're going to attempt to talk about a lot of the stuff that's happened over the last four or five months to us and the world situation and how that's affected decisions we've made and, and the, the product progress and other stuff. And then Neil is going to review a biscuit, which is everyone's favourite segment. I didn't have a biscuit this week, so unfortunately, I considered reviewing a tangerine, but not there's quite not many surprises. Yeah, there's not many surprises in a tangerine. So, and you can't. No one can send you free tangerines in the post if you review their tangerines. Exactly. Although we haven't received any free biscuits yet, so still waiting. Hashtag Chocolibnets. <laughs> Get in touch, guys. So first of all, let's. Let's dig into a little overview of the... Well, we last talked around Christmas, so let's attempt to start there. That feels like a very, very long time ago now. Yeah, and today's date is June 4th. Quite a lot has happened between Christmas and June 4th. Yeah. Mostly stuff that we weren't expecting. So we had our (laughs) plans, we had our best laid plans, and then we sort of improvised on the rest. But... Maybe that's a good place to start, that a lot of businesses we're talking to, whether it's in our co-working space or whether it's associates or in our network, have had horrific problems, really challenges that they would never have expected. And I think it's been tough on a lot of businesses. And I think we've perhaps been small enough that we can sort of run between the elephant's feet and avoid too much fallout, although we have been affected. Yeah, I wonder if a lot of, unless unless your business model is directly tied to, for example, physical events or travel or something like that, maybe as a software company, you're slightly more sheltered from the first order effects, but then right. second and third order effects, which we are yet to find out what what they will be entirely. Definitely economic fallout is may well still affect us. Well, obviously in the in the business of helping teams to grow and to stay happy and active and focused. And in a world where some of our customers are laying off meaningful numbers of staff or furloughing them at least, um, other companies don't really know what their future looks like. We've seen, it's fair to say, at least the profile of our customers slightly change. Mm. I think where there's where there's lots of people working from home and lots of managers who might actually be saving a little bit of time and have a little bit more space to do deep work. There's been a bit of appetite to get started on content and to start laying down the groundwork, which is, which means that the conversations that we've had have been positive from that point of view. People are hungry to solve the problem, but no one is making any financial decisions really at the moment, at least on any scale. Yeah, I think in 2019, and we'll we'll come on to talk about this when we talk a bit about our sales model and how we think about that. But I think in 2019, we had a few, and in early 2020, a few sort of YOLO opportunities where if we get this contract, we're, we're going to be set for the next three months or six months or however long it is. So they were quite big deals. And it feels like that appetite for doing something organisational-wide ambitious has changed and it's a lot more let's just 
sort of see how this goes with a smaller team. Let's kick the tires, see if it's something that we might use in the future. Right. I mean, I think some of the conversations, there's there's definitely learnings for us that are independent of COVID and, and, and everything else that's going on in that when you're effectively still in beta and you're an early stage company, when you start talking to businesses with thousands of employees, the set of requirements that they have, and this is, you know, if you read pretty much any advice about (laughs) building software, you're going to read this almost on line one. It's kind of 101 stuff, but the set of features that they want and the set of requirements that they have around, um, it's almost everything that, isn't your core value, but is around mm-hmm. your core value. So for example, integrations with the other tools they use, uh, which don't necessarily add value to the the product itself, but make their lives easier in terms of selling it to the business, which are all important and should be built over time. But suddenly we were finding ourselves in kind of grooming sessions where we were talking about things that you wouldn't necessarily expect to build in your right. in your beta uh, so I think we we were definitely guilty of following those Pied Pipers too far building features before we'd had paper signed and going into kind of protracted contractual negotiations mm-hmm. and spending money on lawyers frankly um, yep. perhaps we could have avoided but I kind of have no regrets as well because we've learned so much by doing that and we now know we know what the beast is that we have to tame to win a multiple thousand person company and we're probably not unless there may be some early adopting companies Mm -hmm. that, that would be up for it but I think I'm pretty comfortable now saying that our sweet spot is in the low hundreds rather than the multiple thousands right now <laughs> yeah i think so <laughs> um but it's it was it's been painful at times because even just the that allure of this if we land this one deal then our salaries are paid for the next year right it's really hard to avoid that it's really hard to turn away from that and say no let's let's inch our way up with small trials and and not talk to those people i think it's easy in theory and then when it's happening to you it's really hard to yeah i think those sort of deals create a reality distortion field where when you're looking at that spreadsheet and you're looking at the head of terms for a for a deal like that you think yeah this is the way to go but it's so brittle in terms of sort of business resiliency that if that deal is derailed or if the customer doesn't renew then it's it it leaves you more prone than a a bigger diverse range of smaller customers right there's kind of debate internally probably between us about what product market fit means but winning a great big customer before you've hit product market fit based on your ideal customer if that customer doesn't feel like your ideal customer, but they're willing to give you a lot of money, you can kind of ignore the fact that it's not really who you're designing for. Mm-hmm. And almost definitely it will skew the data that you're looking for around understanding 
why your core customer would buy. And some would probably argue, well, if they're buying, then they're your core customer. So you should just focus on them. Yeah. But I, I think that's where that's where having a strategy that is resilient to data points that may not fit into it is really important. But um, I can really imagine, it sounds ridiculous to say, I, I'm glad that we didn't win a great big deal and managed to pay our salaries for a year or whatever. But yeah. You can imagine then that turning the entire company left uh, and the entire strategy left and suddenly you're going after another of those and another of those. And then you're then you're one type of company or one type of product or one type of strategy. Um, and really in your heart of hearts, you feel like you should be something different or you think that actually the adjacent opportunity, which is maybe harder to, to prove in the first instance, but leads to a a bigger or better outcome or something that's more aligned with your personal value set or uh, the kind of company that you want to run is you're going to miss out on that by focusing on the easy money. Right. It sounds like you're talking about high touch and low touch sales, which is probably one of the bigger themes of the period between Christmas and now. And us thinking about what sort of customers do we want and how are we going to reach them? What sort of business do we want to run? Which sort of organizations inherently have the problem that we set out to solve? And that's probably been one of the bigger things that we've worked on um, over the last two quarters. Yeah, so uh, Neil, do you want to go into more detail about kind of where we were, where our headspace was in January versus now? And like what what materially that we've both talked about and tested yeah let me let me see if i can summarize that so i think that before there was progression the rails app there was a wait list and people were interested they visited progression.fyi they were interested in the problem space and interested in how we were approaching it and so we had a wait list with lots of interesting organizations and names and we used this to reach out to do research and to invite people onto our trial and we have been working towards a soft launch which happened probably around four weeks ago but prior to the soft launch we already had 30 customers and meaningful MRR that was covering our office space and contributing to our salaries so it wasn't as if we had been in stealth mode but rather we were working on a sort of invite only basis and I think by having that wait list we inevitably ended up in a high-touch situation where we would reach out to the customers on the waitlist and ask if they're interested, arrange a demo, talk to them about their problem. And this was great because we were learning a lot about the sort of organizations that had the problem we we're trying to solve. We learned about what their expectations of the product and we could give them that sort of concierge experience of this is how the product works and this is how you can get set up. And that covered a multitude of our sins, specifically around a janky new user experience and a lack of automated support around how to get started in the first week. You see these site tours and these sort of email onboarding flows and you just think, oh, everybody has that. But there is, as we're discovering, significant work to put those in place and to think about what's useful to include in those. So we find ourselves in a situation where we're doing high-touch sales 
and that there was a benefit to this. But I think since we've met, the sort of companies that we've admired in terms of their business model and the product and sort of the company's MO have been sort of bottom-up, low-touch companies, at least initially, perhaps like Slack or Atlassian. And we certainly aspired to have a more low-touch approach for a number of reasons. Johnny, you were doing the majority of the outreach and the sales slash demo slash talking to early customers. And I think you had an opinion on sort of almost outbound, not quite cold because they joined a wait list, but certainly pre-trial, very little knowledge of the product, having those sort of conversations versus after a trial. Yeah. What, what was your motivation for sort of wanting to move away from that high touch process to something a bit more? Yeah. So there's, I mean, I, th- I have no written down notes around this and I'm sure that, that this is, I'm going to miss stuff, summing up four or five months of thinking and listening in a in a few minutes. But broadly, I think strategically we're really interested in in a bottom up approach because our thesis is around fundamentally HR led uh, performance management processes don't serve employees well and don't serve managers well to a greater or lesser extent everyone resents having to go through the kind of biannual or annual 360 reviews and the amount of work that it entails for all parties and the amount of real value that employees get out of it is low because there isn't that granularity of information and they're not doing it at a point that it makes sense to them Uh, And it's not actually facilitating better conversations between them and their manager. Uh, It's kind of general company-wide questions being asked and and not that useful. So because we believe that there's an opportunity to provide real and better value to the end user, the employee, we kind of want to get it in their hands as quickly as possible. And the way that definitely HR software in, and we've learned a lot about this in the last six months, the way that HR software and I'm doing air quotes when I say HR software is bought in companies is obviously by ultimately centrally by the HR department. So there's a, there's a buyer. The end state is the buyer is the HR team and it's rolled out company wide. And that's the state that we definitely want to get to where we definitely want to land and expand. But the first pain point is generally like a manager of a team that just wants to get going quickly, would otherwise be doing it in a spreadsheet, which is free for them to do, and wants to solve probably quite a specific set of problems within their team, which is answering difficult questions around personal development, making sure that their talent isn't disappearing off to a nice title somewhere else because there's no clarity around where they could go within the the business. So this... What's interesting about that is that definitely leads to a bottom up. Like I just, in a similar way to Slack, I want to solve my problem. I want to do it ideally without having a big conversation about money or committing to a great big plan. I just want to put my credit card in and pay an amount of money that feels comfortable and get going. And that's the only way really to compete with the spreadsheet on that level. 
later on, obviously, all of the other stuff starts to starts to become important, and then then you have the the bigger conversation. But in order to differentiate ourselves and to keep ourselves honest around serving the end user, it feels important to not just try and sell to HR departments as an alternative to a 360 review performance management tool. We really don't want to be a performance management tool. And I will say it and say it again from the rooftops. That's that's absolutely not what our uh, reason for being is. And so anything that we can do structurally or strategically to avoid becoming that, because that's just the next set of features that our most important customers want, all the better. But I feel like we're about to start talking about kind of the, there's there's a really interesting uh, set of factors that go into whether naturally the product you're building is high touch or low touch and wh- and how you approach your market. We've been listening to a lot of sales podcasts recently right. and, and kind of talking through, it's all well and good wanting to be a thing, but if the natural shape of your business isn't that, then you're going to be fighting a battle that you're never going to win. So yep. the, the goal is to go, is to be low touch and work out how to deliver value to maybe a manager with five reports really quickly and then turn them into advocates internally and then eventually grow out team by team, a little bit like a Slack or a Jira or something like that. Uh, and that is kind of a frothy, cool go-to-market at the moment amongst SaaS companies, but it may not be right for us. Mm-hmm. HR budgets are carefully guarded and these problems around performance and all of that kind of stuff, there's lots of territorialism and it may just be that it's hard to get into companies that way. So we've been talking about this framework. Most recently, it's good, there's almost definitely loads of frameworks uh, to, to talk about something similar. But this one we found compelling. And who's the guy? Wes Bush. Wes Bush talked about it on, on the SaaS podcast. Episode 251, we can link to it in the show notes. Uh, that's how we kind of discovered it. But it's called the Moat Framework for product-led growth and product-led growth as opposed to sales-led growth. So when we talk about low-touch and high-touch, we're talking about low-touch as in we don't talk to a potential customer at all before they sign up. That's zero-touch. Low-touch could be somewhere in between, like we send some emails or we get on a quick sales call. And then high-touch is it takes six months to a year to sign the contract and then the contract's huge and, and, you know, worth five or even six figures maybe i don't know and and we sign up a whole company in one fell swoop and get lawyers involved and negotiate commercials and all that kind of stuff so that if they're the two extreme ends so product-led growth is low touch and sales-led growth is high touch where do we sit where do we where does our product most naturally sit in that world i think it's interesting i mean we have on our wait list the uh, field, what job category do you identify with? Are you a designer, a manager, or an HR person? And we see a bit of everybody signing up. Everybody is interested in this problem. And I think the conversations we have with departmental managers are quite different to those that we have with HR teams. And when we look at our current set of customers, we've had success with both. So I think progression can solve a problem that both HR leaders have 
and departmental leaders or managers have. And inevitably there is a slightly different sales process and that there will be different expectations. So we're now making a bet on going lower touch. The website now has a trial a, a button to sign up with a free trial. Mm-hmm. And we're watching customers or trials happen. And we're trying to baseline our conversion rate from trial to paid. We're learning how much we haven't built from a kind of onboarding and new user experience point of view. So we're kind of building some of that out as we're building the track as the train's rolling. Uh, right. But that's fine. And we'll see how it goes, I suppose. I I don't anticipate that we're ever going to not have someone doing sales. And that that may not be sales up front before you've got your hands on the product. But I quite like the idea of running a sales process during a trial, if that makes sense. So like, yeah, as I part of a trial, we offer you an onboarding session and, and, and kind of start and, and you have the context of the product already so that then we can more directly tackle your concerns rather than give you a generic demo, which is basically what we've been doing for the last four or five months. Right. Um, and then once your first team is successful, then we do the whole inside sales thing and, and, expand work out how to expand to other teams in the business once we've kind of demonstrated that value um yeah and i think that fits with the way that people are adopting and assessing our product and i think wes in the podcast you mentioned hits the nail on the head when he talks about how the expectations of buyers of software have changed and they expect to be able to log in, kick the tires, see how it works, and broadly understand whether it's something that will add value to them. And at that point, be able to talk to somebody to find out more or ask questions. And I think that feels like a natural fit for how people are adopting our software. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, no one, as a consumer of of lots of SaaS software, and I don't want to have to book a demo unless... I really have to, I mean, there's there's very few reasons why I would book a demo. I am obviously not the buyer of a piece of software like ours. We definitely don't need it for our team or at least a paid mm-hmm. version of it. Our customer is approximately 50 to 100 times bigger than us in terms of headcount. Right. <laughs> but, but actually, if we're wearing the hat of the person who is who just wants to know how to grow at work, I actually do want to go in and try it out and see if it really does the stuff that I want it to do so that I can then invite my manager and then my manager can also play around and then maybe we can start a team and just have a few of us in there and not pay too much money for that and just kind of try it out for a bit. And then when we're getting a lot of value, then we can go together or wait until the the HR team comes to us asking what it is and then we can really kind of promote it and, yeah. and see if we can get wider adoption. And I think that approach fits with something we've spoken about since starting out on this journey, which is quite dear to our hearts, which is taking it a, a level lower so that as a designer who, or an engineer or somebody who is ambitious about their career, I can use progression off my own back and I can use that to uh, 
shape the one-on-ones that I have with my manager and to sort of take control of my career yeah. without my manager or the HR department mandating it. I think that will be super interesting when we're able to, when we have a product which sort of individuals can sign up to and start using and then their manager w- might look and think, hmm, why have these one-on-ones been so productive? Or why do they have such a clear idea of what they want to develop over the next quarter and right. see that they're using progression and then it sort of trickles upwards from there. Yeah, that's the, exactly. So if that's an end state, one of the interesting questions I think is, is it possible to achieve a bottom-up strategy without your product being fully free? Like, will we at some point need a free tier, fully free tier? Because as a as a software engineer on the team, I'm not going to start paying. Sure. I'm definitely not going to start paying until I know that it's something that will value me personally and possibly beyond, and possibly outside my current role. So as soon as, you know, they say even even a dollar is very different only free is free there's no such thing as cheap yeah uh, it, if you're getting your card out then it's not free and then the blocker is is there uh, so so do we eventually need to trend towards a fully free tier so that we can get all of those people who are who might get value solo or just as a an individual and manager pair like get them value uh, on day one and have them sticking around and wait until they start to see real value and however long that takes before then they say, oh, hold on, maybe you should use this with your other reports because this is going well for us. And then at that point, the manager starts paying. Right. It seems inevitable that if we continue going down the stack to get to the point of the member of the team who wants to take charge of their career, that at that point with with the whole business that we want to build, it wouldn't make sense to charge. I think there is a business where you would charge. Perhaps it's an indie hacker business. Perhaps it offers uh, coaching or consulting for for career Mm. choices. And you might choose to try and monetize that. I think it'd be very difficult to to get money out of individuals within a team. Although I suppose you could, I mean, the way that you could do that is just a spitball. Everyone has their personal development budget. That's true. Whatever it is that they might otherwise spend on a conference. I don't know how easy it is to kind of activate that as part of. Right. Like, and we can fit it into learning and development tools, and and you can start your start your progression account solo, and it just comes out of that. Yep. Um, it's interesting. But then it's for us to decide whether there's greater value in. I know, 10,000 subscriptions at $2 a month each or having 100,000 people using this, embedding it virally within the organization, perhaps not the best analogy at this time, (laughs) but having that as a a marketing and a growth channel for sort of spreading knowledge of progression and awareness of the tool. I think that gets super interesting and doesn't require any shady behavior. It's not like, we're going to sell on the data and that's how we'll make that's how we'll make the money back exactly yeah yeah you're 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 offering a true freemium service it's not it's not advertising based because it leads to value yeah um, and as a manager 
you see two members of your team are using your competitor's framework because your organization is not using progression yet. So the framework they're using is, I don't know, Intercom's design framework. And you might look at that and think, oh, well, if my organization had a framework, they could use that instead. That'd be great. <laughs> exactly. And that, that's how sale is made. Yeah. I mean, the, the challenge with, with that right now is, I suppose, you're adding an extra n months onto the the process of getting someone from free to paid to more paid to a company investing and and yeah a company like slack wouldn't be scared of that at all i think Mm -hmm. they'd be like cool yeah we'll just wait a year that's fine we know that the product over that time starts to give value and they have the cash reserves to sit on to to kind of just wait it out um so I suppose the the question for us is, if we believe that that's the right strategy, why aren't we doing it today? I think that we, as a result of being bootstrapped, there are certain sort of hard limits. We need to make money over the next couple of months to pay for our servers and to pay some mm-hmm. of our bills. And so that incentivizes us to look at how can we charge money right now for this bit of value, which is yeah. being consumed which is unfortunate because there are these sort of more longer term creative business models that become really interesting and i think that perhaps once we are more stable or we have more revenue or perhaps even funding then that becomes a a lot more viable to to try that sort of model but i think our our, our our thinking has been shaped literally by the fact of oh, our UK government mortgage holiday is going to expire in <laughs> next month. So that means it'll be an extra X hundreds of pounds of outgoings and right. this is how much we've got in the bank. And Yeah, totally. It, it drives us to make a certain set of decisions. The pre-funding hand-to-mouth, the basic needs met is, yeah. uh, is, is for sure top of mind. Um, I think the other thing though is, is probably just focus. We know how much there is to do to just get um, get our paid tiers working. That yeah. Until we know that when we convert our free users to paid, they get meaningful value and can get up and running quickly, then there's very little value in driving free to paid anyway. And I, f- I feel like as soon as you open up a, f- a free tier, you get however many thousands of users. They're not going to be all quiet and just... They're, they're going to have feature requests and things are going to break there. And then suddenly with a small team where our backlog is overrun by, by the loudest voices, free tier voices aren't quieter than paid tier voices. In fact, from everything I've heard, it's the opposite. So, (laughs) um, yeah, there's, there's definitely a product managers rule of saying no to almost everything has to, has to be top of mind here. For sure. Yeah, cool. So, so yeah, in five months, we've we've done hundreds of sales calls. We've uh, onboarded a bunch of new teams. We've talked to teams that have now been using progression for a year or, or, or more and tried to understand how we can help them get more out of progression and what they've most enjoyed about it. The big One of the biggest things we've visibly shipped is our new marketing site, which helps to explain... Yep progression which is useful because sales calls are easier when people have read through 
your site and already watched a video and all of that kind of stuff. And I suppose the next quarter or the next three to six months is just putting in place those easy wins around onboarding, shoring up some of the features that we've already built to make them extra powerful and kind of drive to insight and uh, really validate whether low touch is viable. Yeah, I think that there's a couple of themes of making it as quick and as easy as possible to get to the aha moment of this is the value that progression gives. And it can be as small as changing where a button is placed. It can be as big as having to create a whole new set of skills to cover a new discipline. But that that will definitely be a theme of what we're doing. Yeah. Yes. Exciting. It is. And I think that there are also a couple of potentially new features that we're thinking about. We have some sort of big ideas, themes that we want to touch on. So integrations is one. And so we're thinking about what would, what could Slack integration look like? And it could be as simple as a notification that, hey, your check-in's ready to review. Or you could potentially do a check-in from within Slack or a sort of periodic update. One thing we get consistently asked about is, can I see check-in progress over time? So I've done a check-in, I've done a snapshot in time of how I'm performing. Uh, if I do four of those over the course of a year, what insights can I get from that for me as an individual and for my team? And so I think we're going to be we're going to be thinking a bit about what data do we show there, and what there's a few obvious things that we could show which go against the the goals of progression. So, I mean, you could show very simply who has gained more progression points, who has increased in skills most. But then if people are taking on new skills, such as management, they inevitably start at a lower base and they're losing quote unquote points. So there's a lot of thinking there about sort of how we incentivize the right behaviors and show useful information. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think you've touched on on a couple of the things that are going to be highest it's t- it's tough because it's hard to know when something's a new feature versus an improvement on an existing one and some of these things can be tackled incrementally and won't necessarily be a big bang thing but definitely integrations is is super high priority um and the other thing is just making sure that there's enough content in our library that it's valuable for a wide enough set of teams yeah as well and making sure that that content is really high quality and especially given the situation that we find ourselves in over the last week uh, and and the, the the movement that has brought to light so many of the inequalities that exist and have existed for hundreds of years and are really important to think about right now we're definitely doubling down on that and we I, I suspect at the start of this podcast there's been we've talked about it but with some more formed thoughts than my ramble right now. <laughs> yeah i mean in the pre-chat the pre-pod chat we were talking at length about it and we have done in the past about the subject of anti-bias anti-racism diversity and inclusion i'm not even sure the best terminology to use here and the really exciting thing for me is I think unlike at any other point in my career, I find myself working on a platform that has the potential to make a meaningful impact. 
And if this is a platform which eventually is used by tens or hundreds of thousands of organizations and hundreds of thousands of individual users, and we can shape, quote unquote, what good looks like for different positions and for different skills, that gives us a tremendous opportunity to mess up and to do things wrong, but also to think about sort of how bias might manifest itself in both the product and the skills and content within the product. But our conclusion before the, in our pre-pod chat was there's a lot of thinking to do. There's a lot of nuance to work out and things to explore. And we are not the people best placed to explore this to explore this issue from all different aspects. Mm. And that's something that we'll want to bring in some outsiders of our organization into to discuss and to get their thoughts as well. So yeah. I think there will be things, we will be publishing things and talking about things and changes that we want to make. Absolutely. Yeah. Two white male founders building a product that could affect many is a commitment and an obligation to actually be not just chatting about how nice it would be to do stuff, but actually doing stuff uh, exactly. and making making very deliberate choices in our product and in our content and in how we act to make sure that we're not just doing no harm, but are actually contributing to to an effort to to introduce anti-bias, anti-racism, uh, and and equality and, and all of that good stuff. So yeah, I, this is this is the start. I really don't think that until we've implemented some of the things that we've talked about so far, we have no right to let ourselves in any way off the hook. If that makes sense. Mm. So. That does make sense. In a moment of levity, shall we get you to review a biscuit and then we should call it a day? <laughs> sure. I mean, this barely qualifies as a biscuit, to be honest. It is a Nutella Be Ready bar. I think it's a new release from, is it Ferrero Rocher, the manufacturer? And it is probably the class A of biscuits. It is a sort of a crispy wheat-based shell with Nutella inside. Think about a Kinder Bueno, bit less Kinder, bit more Nutella. And I'll be honest with you, Johnny, I feel guilty eating it. I feel shame. I feel like I should be above it. But I'm eating it anyway, and it's delicious. I'll bring some into the office. So I would give it eight and a half out of ten. Would definitely okay. recommend. But exercise moderation and... Make sure you eat so, an apple in the afternoon to compensate. One clarifying question on the biscuit. What what weight does it list? Because, you know, I, I like a, a certain amount of heft to my biscuit. And I, I'm concerned about the Kinder Bueno being too light. So that comparison, meaning that I may need a, a chaser after this one. <laughs> <laughs> I think if you're after heft, this isn't the right biscuit for you. If you're after impact... It's, uh, it's got impact in spades. Okay. So Excellent. you might need a slice of bread to, to follow up. Okay. Could I spread it on a slice of bread? I suppose I could. You could definitely make a sandwich from it. 
<laughs> Maybe I will. Okay. <laughs> Just parish notices to end on. If you are using progression at the moment or you would like to and you want to chat to us about any of these things in more detail, we'd love to hear from you. Email us, team at progressionapp.com. You can follow Neil and myself on Twitter where we're sometimes chatty but often not. Uh, yeah. And um, LinkedIn and all of the other places that we do things. That would be awesome. Do subscribe to the podcast, rate it on iTunes and whatnot if if you want to. That really does help. And we'll try and chat a bit more often. It feels like twice a year isn't enough. Yeah, I think more more often than twice a year would be good. <laughs> okay, ambitious. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks, Neil. Okay, thanks, Johnny.